Hey everybody, I'm Jonathan. I'm Jeremy. And we are the Evangelicals. Today, we are talking about something that everybody has been talking about for quite some time. And I mean, quite some time. Since the beginning. The very beginning of time. We're talking about sex today, baby. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm kind of intrigued and interested as to where I think we're going to head with this. But I believe that, once again, it's something that the church, uh, we struggle to, to, to really handle well. And, and, and sometimes we have to look at ourselves and say, okay, we've done this well. And sometimes we haven't done things as well as we should have. And so we just want to try to, to begin uh, the conversation, maybe new and fresh, try to give people a different launching point. And uh, so hopefully we will uh, accomplish that today. And today we are thrilled to have with us a guest, our first guest on the Evangelical first Podcast. Guest. So we're uh, bringing on today Rachel Kuhn, who is a pastor in Tip City, Ohio, the Tip City Church of the Nazarene. Uh, she is a mother of three teenage boys and a little girl who's four, almost five. Um, she's a rock star in our opinion, and we think that you are going to enjoy what she has to contribute to the conversation today. So welcome, Rachel. We're glad to have you. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here, excited for the topic of conversation, and look forward to digging in with you guys. And We're Rachel gonna... and I already have had a conversation in front of a lot of male pastors uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So we're bringing you into this conversation. No, that's actually. right. You guys had a really good dialogue about uh, gender issues, and it was very. I was glad to be there and listen to it. So as we have before, I want to begin today by using a scripture as the focal text for the conversation, framing the conversation. Because in our contemporary society, when we talk about sex, usually people are talking about self-entitlement and what I choose to do with myself. But the Christian conversation, the evangelical conversation, the good news conversation, I think needs to begin from the place where, where Paul comes from. First Corinthians 6, in verse 19, he says, he says to the early church, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And when we are talking about sex in the church, we are talking about it through that lens. We're not having a secular conversation about sex. We're not having a conversation about males, females, uh, a conversation that's informed by paradigms of culture. We're having a conversation that is informed by discipleship. I think the hard part, not the hard part, but the part that we can't forget is we are ha having that conversation within a culture. Yep. And and so I don't know that we can ever um, s separate ourselves and say, well, we're just having this conversation in a vacuum. So, yes, I think you're right. We're not having the same conversation, or at least we shouldn't be having the same conversation. But while we as the church are having this, it is within a culture that talks a lot about sex and talks a lot about their understanding of, of how we live in, in the midst of that story. And so, so yeah, I totally agree. Uh, but once again, I think the reason we have to have this conversation is because our culture is having this conversation. So there's two areas that, we're, that we could have a conversation about sex. And so we're going to kind of divide the, the podcast, the episode like this. We're going to talk about sex outside of marriage and then kind of sexual ethics in marriage. And 
So I want to I want to begin by talking about the way that we are talking about sex to our teenagers, to our young people, and how we're bringing up people in the church. Uh, Jeremy, you had had some thoughts about the framing of that conversation in the church. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure all three of us could talk about um, a True Love Waits event we went to, where yeah, we right. signed a card and saying that we were going to be abstinent. And and I think the, the 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 data and the statistics are astonishing as to how many teenagers from my era signed one of those cards at some point and and then still chose to engage in sexual activity before marriage. And and so we we thought we were doing, and once again, I, I think the people that had um, those thoughts and that understanding and that movement came from a place of wanting teens to live and be who God wanted them to be. But it seems like we focused more on one act that we should stay away from rather than calling teens to a life that is blessed and the best life that God would have for us to live and be a part of. Rachel, you have some history with that. And did you do any True Love Waits uh, services? Were you part of any of that? Yeah, I um, I don't know if I specifically did True Love Waits, but I remember being a part of services where it was all a lot of it is very commitment heavy. So if I make this mm. pledge, if I make this commitment, if yeah. I make this covenant between me and God, which makes it even worse when you break it because you're like, ah, I just <laughs> broke this covenant with Jesus. Um, and you're those that that makes it really difficult. I think then we have to go back to, you know, some, somewhere along the line, we've made it law. Like this is the law. Thou shalt not have sex before you're married. Um and we haven't added good framework for that. But I, I think about the book of James and when he talks about our faith being resurrected and what faith looks like when we're really living it. And he said, you know, we, we no longer are, are worried about the written law. Now we obey the royal law, the law of freedom, the law that Jesus gives us. And what does that law go back to? Loving God and loving others. So when we put it in that framework that, that we love God first and we love others second, well, what does loving others look like? Um it looks like not taking advantage of them. But we become, and especially as teenagers, I mean, your frontal lobe doesn't develop till you're like 25. So you're yeah. not you're not necessarily thinking with your brain when you're a 16-year-old boy. I have one of those, so I know <laughs> a frontal lobe and a 16-year-old boy. And um <laughs> when you're when you're looking at it from you know, from that perspective, they're not necessarily thinking about the other person. They're thinking about their body's urges and their desires and and yeah. so our culture is not helpful um, to help shape uh, what what Christ-like thoughts are supposed to look like when you're a 16-year-old boy and you're fluctuating or a 16-year-old girl and going through all those hormonal changes. And so what do we, you know, what do we do in the church to help reshape that? Yeah, so I, th- I think one thing that that is, is crucial is is really getting back to this understanding that First and foremost, that all people are created in the image of God. And sometimes I think we fail to call our teens to view all people in that manner, and uh, especially in, in sexuality. And so I think that as we are calling teens to a higher life, it, it and unfortunately, once again, it's been about we shouldn't, we shouldn't have sexual intercourse. And, and you know, were talking about the medical definition but it kind of left the door open to making sure that everything, everything else. else was okay. And 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 we've slipped into the, this understanding, well, I'm not doing that one thing. 
therefore I'm good, I'm okay, but the whole time still objectifying, still uh, uh, putting our emotions and our bodies potentially through even the same rhythms and the same understandings with, but but we were good because we weren't doing the one thing that we signed a card saying we weren't going to do. Well, you bring up a really good point in the fact that all of us are sexual beings and we as pastors are sitting around having this conversation and we're aware of the fact that a majority of people spend probably more time thinking about sex than they even do thinking about their their spiritual life, right? Or maybe even any other facet of life. And we have kind we have completely neglected all of the little things that spiritually form young people and have simply said to them, don't have sex. So how does going to a movie affect my sexuality? We don't, we don't talk about that. But I remember, I remember in high school going with a bunch of church friends to a movie that had a sexually explicit scene. And I remember thinking about that for like a for like a week just after that because I wasn't someone that grew up in a home where there was a lot of a lot of sexually explicit things. I mean, my my parents really tried to cultivate a home of purity, and I just remember reflecting on the fact that while I had was was working to have a relatively pure mind, going and spending time in that theater affected my self understanding and my view of the world for an indefinite period of time after that. I mean, and movies is just one thing. The the people that we surround ourselves with, I mean, friendships really shape for young people how sexually pure they are going to be or they're not going to be. Fashion, the fashion decisions that we make, uh, make statements about our priorities of ourselves and um, the way that we the way that we want to communicate our value to others. Yeah. Before we jump in, I know we're going to talk about fashion and different things. I think that a better way, once again, to help our teens is we we fail sometimes to talk about that how emotional the sexual act is. We mm-hmm. fail to talk about the connection between two people in the midst of that act. And how when God looked at people and said, man, sex was best lived out in marriage, I think what he was actually trying to do was not be a prude or a stick in the mud. He was actually trying to protect us and and, and, and set up some parameters, some boundaries. It says, I want you to live the best life possible and, and, and in a way to, 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 to protect yourselves from emotional baggage that you don't understand at this point, a way to protect yourselves from physical potentially harm that you don't understand at this point. And the way that this is best lived out is if you just wait. And, and once again, I'm not trying to be a prude. I invented this sex act, um, but I'm trying to, as your Lord and Savior, protect you and keep you as safe as I possibly can. And and so how do we teach that message, that story, rather than once again, don't do this. As parents and pastors, I I think it's, re- you know, this topic's kind of taboo, even though our world talks about it all the time. It yeah. talks about it in this terrible format that is just not even comprehensible, making sex look like something that it totally isn't. Um, and then for evangelicals, like, we look at it and we go, okay, how do we address this? Because it's weird. And, yeah. um, and I, you know, I think it's, 
it's really kind of funny. My Hopefully my boys won't listen to this because they'll be like, I can't believe you talked about me. <laughs> so lame, Mom. Um, it, you know, like we had – we lived on two acres of land and we had chickens. And so – and we had a rooster and he was when you were violent. Young? No, no, no. Like 10 – no, before we moved to Tip City. So okay, just okay. two years ago. Okay. It wasn't very long ago. And so our middle son – um, one day the rooster is like taking advantage of this poor hen and nature and all those things. And he's like, uh, and so my husband starts talking about sex naturally with this, you know, reproduction with, with my middle son. And that was the beginning of a discussion. And you know, we grew up in an era where, um, you know, we watched videos or we went on retreats to talk about what sex yeah. was, or, you know, now they teach it. And I don't know, I think it's seventh grade. You have to watch the reproduction of life. Oh, fifth grade. Or, you know, fifth grade. It's so the, bad. The talk. My it's son. So bad. Yeah, it was, it's so early. fifth grade when I was in yeah. school. Yeah. But it's, it really, it's got to be a natural conversation. we got to get over ourselves. Yes. We've got to start talking about this in real life time. Um, my oldest son and I were in the car and the song comes on the radio, not Christian radio, just regular radio. And I turned it off for a minute and I was like, so do you know what that guy was just talking about? And he said, uh, because he was kind of singing along. I was like, well, pretty much he said, women are made so that I can use them for my pleasure and they shouldn't wear clothes. And that woman is a bee. And and so we just kind of walked. And he was like, oh, let's listen to Christian Rachel now. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you about this, I don't want to talk about this awkward. But it's good. It's good for him to be made awkward because culture is not making him feel awkward. The sex yeah. and culture is making him feel these desires. Well, as a mom, as a pastor, it's my responsibility to come and say, okay, what does Jesus say about this? What do we, what do, we do about this when our lives have been transformed by the Holy Spirit? How do we— now, how do we navigate sexuality? Yeah, and as the church, we've let the culture take this narrative, and I think we got to reclaim it. We, we've let the culture define and determine and speak into the lives of our students and our people what is appropriate and, and inappropriate, which isn't much. Um, and it, we as the church have to reclaim that story on some level about what God thinks about all of it. So talking about sex before marriage, I want to talk about a couple of issues. One of them I want to talk about is fashion. As a Christian, we go shopping. Unless you're making your own clothing. We, we, <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. There are Christians that do this, and we support you if that's what you're doing. But for most of us, we go shopping in a very sexual, in a very sexually informed culture. So when you walk into Express, when you walk into uh, where are kids shopping these days? American Eagle. People still shop there. H&M. Hollister. Hollister, H&M, there we go. When you walk into these places, when you walk to the guy's side, there are there is some there is some immodest clothing, but for the most part, when you go to the a guy's section of the store, you're seeing full pants, you're seeing shirts that go down past the waist, you're seeing long sleeve shirts, this type of thing. As a guy, when you walk into a store, there is a different standard for what you're going to walk out with than for a woman. So if a girl walks into a store and wants to get it, just pick up an average outfit that covers the same portion of their body that a guy's average outfit would cover, they have to look a lot harder and their selection is much smaller. I mean, we got the belly shirts. The cool thing, you got the, 
You got the shoulder, the shoulder shoulder. You got to show the shoulders, you know? You don't I mean, have one of those shirts, Jonathan, where your shoulders are showing? I have, I have yet to purchase. I'm protesting. I have yet to purchase a shoulder show. Me neither. Me neither. I, no I shoulder show. No, no shoulder show. Oh, shows. man. I, I'm just oh. totally not in fashion. I don't know. But, but, I, but it is difficult. It is difficult to be a young person who is trying to be modest because you care about purity. Rachel, talk... Talk to us about fashion. <laughs> you act like I know something about fashion. I don't know. I, like I said, my all of my teenagers are male children. Sure. So, and my daughter wants to wear sweatpants. So, it's, <laughs> I'm pretty safe right now. Um, I, you know, it just all goes back to a matter of the heart. It, you know, if we're living, if we're living holy lives, then we are allowing God to feed into us and give us our value instead of us finding our value from outside sources. And so, um, and culture also dictates what the best type of body is and what your body right. needs to look like to be able to wear certain things or, or do certain things. And so we go out and we, um, you know, buy things that, yeah, like, my dad never would have let me out of the house and that stuff. There's just no way. But I never even tried because I just knew. I, you know, I just knew that's not, that's not what I wanted to look like or who I wanted to be. Um, at the same time... We um, we kind of put it all back on the person that is um, that's choosing the clothes. So we go, okay, like that's your choice. You can choose what you want, but don't choose anything that's going to tempt me. So like you can wear whatever you want to, Jonathan, but don't you know don't don't wear a bro tank. Like don't don't be doing that because that's not okay for me and my spirit to walk. Um, but I think that the the when we when we have holiness of heart. All of a sudden, we quit looking at other people and judging. Oh, what an ugly word. We start judging them based upon what they're wearing. And we go, okay, um, this isn't about me. Like the choices that I make for myself, they're they're about me and they're about others. But that person isn't in the same place that I'm in. And so we've got to be making choices for us that look like Jesus. um, But we also have to go into it with grace, understanding that other people are not doing that. Sure. I I think you're exactly right. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, you just called me out pretty seriously. My kryptonite is the bro tank. I love a good bro tank in the summer. Uh, but should we give up on some sort of standard of Christian modesty? You just made it. You just made a point of a standard that I think was true. I think that 20 or 30 years ago, I'm not saying that you're that old, 10 years ago, <laughs> I, I think 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I think there was a different standard in the evangelical church abroad as far as what was appropriate for someone to wear. I think there was somewhat of a uniform uniform standard of modesty that has gone by the wayside because of individualism, because of a more secular ethic, whatever, however you would name it, whatever you would say is the cause of it. Do we, do we have a shot at modesty? And, and should we be fighting for modesty as parents and as people who are informing young people in the church? Yeah. So I, I guess we don't want to be legalistic. So when I was at you know church camp and at college, girls seemed to have more rules once again than boys. Because, Many more rules. And, and it, it just seemed to be yeah. the, the the norm. Um, and so, you know, skirts, if you put your arms down by your side, they had to touch your fingertip the or finger be a certain. Rule. Yeah, the yeah. fingertip yeah. rule. Um which, you know, if a, a young lady had long legs, 
just totally threw that rule yeah. out the window. Yeah, yeah. forget about body ratios. <laughs> yes, exactly <laughs> the right. The rule for everybody. So how do we have a better conversation as evangelicals that doesn't make it this legalistic understanding about you can and you can't, but really calls teens to understanding that that how we present ourselves, that that's a holy matter too. Man, and I think it, a lot of it goes back to parenting um, and and talking to, having conversations with our teens. I can't, well, I can. The world has declared that if you are good looking within the standards of the world, if you've got it, you should flaunt it, baby. Like that yeah. is just the, and there are moms out there today, not not trying to like throw the females under the bus, but there are moms out there today. They're like, yeah, don't, like my daughter, you know, she's got it. So she's going to flaunt it. I'm like, that, those shorts have like a zero seam. They're like underwear. Like how is she wearing that in public? Yeah, and I think, could you talk to this, Rachel? We were talking earlier and and I think it, it was so uh, brilliant um, about the understanding of how do we, uh, once again, call all people to the standard of saying, um, don't sell yourself short. Don't... Um, don't do something just so that you can be accepted because of what you're wearing, but have more value in your identity as who God's created you to be. And uh, like I said, you were talking a little bit about that earlier, that, that sometimes ladies will do things so that they can have that feeling of this guy likes me, this guy looked at me, and we put our value sometimes in that. And so how do we change the narrative for young ladies and young men that it isn't about the look I get, the whistle I get when I walk down the street, but I am comfortable in who God has created me to be. Man, identity is just so key to all of that. And it's... Okay, so there's this great children's book by Max Licato um, called You Are Special. Have you guys ever read mm-hmm. it? Okay, nice, good. You've read it before, Jeremy? I think so, yeah. Okay, so it's this, this fantastic book about Wemmicks, these little wooden people, and there's a woodcarver, and he makes them, and they give away dots and stars depending on how good you are. And they find this, you know, this girl named Lucy finds this Wemmick boy who none of these things stick to him. Like, he does poor things or he does good things. People try to give him stars and they just fall off. And she finally says, how does that happen? He goes, I just spend time with the woodcarver. And so he takes her to sit at the woodcarver's bench. And every single day, the woodcarver just instills in him, you are valued, you are loved, you are cared for. And I think that comes from a lot of different places. One, we're not teaching our we're not teaching our next generation of people to be in the Word of God, to fall in love with the Word of God. Yeah. Um, he breathes out life; it is living and active. And for them to find value and to find their identity, they've got to be there. Um, second of all, parents aren't doing it. Um, we are. I was reading a book the other day. I'm called Anxious for Nothing by Max Lucado. Oh, it's another Max Lucado. Look at that. I'm all Max lucado hey, up today. I this episode know. brought to you by Max Lucado. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm allowed to talk about other people's things on this. I may no, have to chop good. all of it. Max is going to send a letter of appreciation. No, it's good. Anxious for Nothing. It talks about our teenagers. Our, teen- our teenagers today are more stressed out than psych ward patients from the 1950s. Like, we have stressed them out. And so... Um, as parents, we're just we're just not focusing on the right things. We're not encouraging our our kids to find their identity, to grow, to make mistakes. We live in this environment of perfectionism. Yeah. And then it goes back to the church, and I'm gonna I'm gonna blame them a little bit too. Like this bride blaming of Christ. Us. This is blaming us. The bride yes. of Christ is not doing her job. Um, 
I, I would love to look at the elders of our church and say, will you all be authentic? Will you come out and talk about the mistakes you've made so that we can help this next generation learn from those mistakes? My parents, my grandparents, we need you all to step up. Don't just yell at these guys about what they're wearing. Walk into their lives and help them find value. Help them to seek out their identity, to find Christian heritage that is just so good. And let's not make it about about the... You know, about the Levitical law, so to say, but let's make it about the law of love and the law of grace and um and and let's use those things to build up their identity, to build up their self-worth. So we're not trying to find it in the way that some guy looks at us. Yeah, it reminds me of um uh I used to to say, and I guess I maybe still do, when people would ask me my philosophy of ministry, um, and, and I would tell a story that a dog is running towards the road. And you see a car coming and the dog doesn't see the car coming. And so how do you get the dog to turn around? If I yell at the dog, the dog will think that he's doing a great job because he doesn't understand the words I'm actually saying. The only way to get the dog to turn around and come back to the house is to somehow get the dog's attention and start running towards the house. And then the dog will follow me back to the house. And I think that what we have to do is stop yelling at the generation and start getting their attention and saying, hey, I'm running this direction and 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 that I believe that if you are going to be like Jesus, I want you to follow me this right. direction and lead by example, lead by authenticity. And um and once again, uh, our unfortunately our mode in the church has been let's yell and talk about how awful the generation behind us is, rather than saying no, let's go, come follow me. I'm right. running towards Jesus, and I want you to follow me that direction as well. But that's it's discipleship. Yes. And Jesus doesn't say to his disciples. Go convert everyone and try to get them to understand philosophically what you believe. He says, make disciples in the nations. And the fact of the matter is, when it comes to sexuality and Christian sexual ethics, we have not been spending our time investing in people making Christian disciples. There was a, um, I was with a group of pastors just recently, and I was talking about authenticity. Like, we have got to be authentic. Um, my kids know that I've made that I made mistakes as a teenager. We have open conversations mm-hmm. about sexuality in our house. Um, and part of that is because I preach about it. I, you know, if I'm at a teen camp or whatever, I share those things. And so it's important that I talk to my kids privately too about those things because I'm their mom. Right. Um, but in this pastor responded, Well, I'm not I'm not really comfortable um airing my dirty laundry, is the way that he put it. Um, when we were talking about authenticity, and I'm like, listen, if we can't be authentic about our own personal struggles, then how in the world do we expect this um, this next generation to be authentic? Because they're already living in a cyber techie world that we don't fully understand as mature adults. <laughs> yeah, and I think it takes us into um, kind of another topic speaking about authenticity and nobody wants to talk about pornography in the church and nobody wants nobody. to address uh, what is the huge elephant in the room. <laughs> nobody yeah. wants to. And, and I, I, a few weeks ago, I did a, a sermon on uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. And um, so we talked about how Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, don't even lust yeah. after a woman. Um, it would be better to gouge your eye out or to cut off your hand. And I just looked at our congregation and said, we obviously don't take this passage literally because all the guys still have their eyes. And they looked at me like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but wow. we, we don't want to, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, 
it's hard to deny it. But once again, we we aren't having a great conversation no. about how we handle pornography in the church. Well, even even just I mean, just think about the way that we frame c- c- pornography. The word that everyone uses when they t- when they that everyone uses when they talk about their experience with pornography is I struggle with it. Imagine this. Imagine somebody is saying to you, I struggle with pedophilia. What's the, what's the response? I mean, the immediate response is, well, you're not going to be for long. We're going to help you. <laughs> right. Right. We're going to help you or we're going to admit you or we're going to send you away. But we don't put up with that. Imagine someone say, I, I am struggling with abusing my wife. I, I mean, that's just not, nobody's going to accept that. That's not, that's not going to be culturally accepted. It's, well, I would hope not in the church. I want to tell you the fact is that men who are looking at pornography are abusing their wives. They're mm. abusing them emotionally, um, emotionally, and they, there may not be a physical abuse that takes place, but psychologically, these wives are being damaged when their husbands are looking at pornography. Now, I, yeah, I mean, that's, that's right. It's kind of a mic drop moment. I, you're exactly right, Rachel. And but but for whatever reason, we tolerate pornography as a struggle um, or something that we help people with by keeping them accountable. But of all the things that we ought to be taking seriously to, I don't know, to the to the extent of some sort of punishment. I, I don't I don't want to sound too harsh or insensitive, but but we. We are so culturally conditioned by media and by the ways of the world that living in a pornographic culture, we have just accepted pornography to be in some ways a part of church culture as well. Not positively, we're not like proud of it or something, but we definitely don't treat it the same way that we treat a lot of other issues that are that would tear us away from God. Yeah, and I think that Probably, I, I don't know, have any statistics to back this up, but it could have something to do with, and I, obviously, you know, the, the statistics of pornography between men and women are, are pretty close. And, you know, I think men probably uh, view it a little bit more, more but yeah. it could be that we don't view this as such a big deal because we lived in a patriarchal society for so long where women were thought to be less potentially. And so therefore- For so long- in the past, I mean, right, well, okay. right. <laughs> but I'm just trying to say maybe that bends our understanding that we don't think this is as big of a deal because women have been viewed for so long potentially as being less than. If that, no, I think you're right. I think, I think that there are. Point. I think that there are pastors who would hesitate being really strict on this issue or preaching against it because the fact of the matter is for them they have been a pornographer or someone who either in the past or someone who still has a difficult time giving up some sort of secret habit. Yeah. And you know, it's all, it goes back to culture. It goes back to, you know, I I think even with the, the rise of Hugh Hefner and all of the things that he supported and went after and this, this desire to, idolize women and then you know he creates this house full of prostitutes pretty much yeah. and and makes it look like it's some kind of amazing wonderful life and then what do we do we start selling magazines with these with these women who are who are living in this 
house in this mess. And and so all of these teenage guys, all of these men, these grown men start taking this and 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 infusing it into their minds. And then our culture makes it acceptable. And I feel like I I feel like in the last five years we've seen this turn towards looking at social justice, looking at human trafficking, looking at those things and going, okay, we've got to get back to the core of why this is taking place. Um, and one of the reasons is we have infiltrated our minds with the idea that it is okay to put someone on a sexual pedestal. It's okay for us to look at a female in an inappropriate way or a male in an inappropriate way um, and even use terminology like, well, God created that or whatever excuse that we want to use to try to make it seem like it's okay. It's not okay. No, that's exactly right. It's not okay. I, I mean, my my prayer with this Me Too movement is really that it does, that it goes the full distance. Because it is one thing for women to have a voice to be able to talk about things that have happened to them. But when are the men going to stand up and say, women have dignity, they have inherent value, and pornography is something that is not culturally acceptable. I mean that that would be a movement of justice. That would be that would be going the further difference than just giving someone a voice. That would be speaking to a deeper issue and for people they may not even understand their need to speak up, the full depravity of the situation that they are in. And I think we got to get back to once again this Genesis 1 like that male and female are created in the image of God. Because when we turn the opposite sex into something other than that as an object for me to um, commodify or to objectify, to consume, um, then I am making them less. And I, I believe, once again, as Rachel said eloquently, in turn, making myself less as well. So objectification and self-understanding, dignity, really come into play once someone is in an intimate relationship. And as we talked about uh in our conversation prior to, prior to going on, just our shared understanding that sex is best in marriage. So let's let's talk a little bit about sex and marriage because I think that the way that we are raising our young people is setting them up in some ways, uh, not for success in marriage. Should I say that? Are setting them up for failure when they get to marriage? I know that for me, for example, uh, my wife Kate and I, we. Uh, we got married and we went on our honeymoon and we were, were on our honeymoon and we had a conversation a couple of days in where uh, Kate implies to me, she says to me something about, you know, is this not, is this not a good time for you or you're not having a great time? And I said, well, what are you talking about? She said, well, I was told in youth group that, that when we got married, you would just want to have sex all the time. And I said, well, it's kind of interesting that you would say that because I was also told that. But the fact of the matter is I've not spent the last 22 years of my life having sex. And so <laughs> this whole thing is just a little overwhelming for me. <laughs> and I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought it up. Cause I've, I've just, this, and we, and so we just, we just started having this incredible conversation about expectations and how in our Christian cultures that we grew up in, in different places, how we had really been set up for failure and for, uh, just an experience of a honeymoon that was less than fantastic because sex is like any other physical activity. It's something that takes work. Yeah, sure. And I think that you hit the nail on the head and I try to, when I'm counseling people who are getting married, that 
one thing I tell them is I think the reason a lot of marriages end in divorce is because unrealistic expectations aren't met. And so they come into it thinking it's going to be one thing. And when it isn't that, then they think, well, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I really don't love this person. Maybe I really don't without understanding, no, I've entered into a covenant with this person. And and it includes all of life. The sexual part is a part of that, but it's not the holistic understanding of why we got married. And if it was, then um, once again, you could be disappointed <laughs> in, in the whole understanding. I remember one youth pastor on the one district I was on one time, and uh, it wasn't the current district. He's like, man, when I got married, I just knew it was gonna, we were going to have like Naked Tuesday or something like that, you know? And we were just going to be running around all day like Adam and Eve. And um, and and he's like, but you realize real quick that you got to go to work and you have to yeah. pay bills and yeah. you have to yep. do all – and then you have kids and then it's all over after that point. Well, and, and uh, it's, it's – it's, there's this – there's this beauty of the cycle of life. And, you know, when you're a teenager and you're, for whatever reason, okay, our culture is saturated in sex. The passage that you read earlier, the thing that I, I think is important for us to talk about is the fact that that entire section of scripture was all about sexuality. That's it. So guess what? It's always been an issue. Always. Yep. Um, from the very fall of man living in a sinful world, God said, guess what? The result is man um you are going to lord over your wife in the fact that she wants you desire, to desire her. Like, she wants you to want her, and you're going to lord that over her. Like, that's just the— mm. So sex has been an issue since the very beginning of time. But we have very limited time on this planet. And even in even in that, I've, I've been married for 18 years. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we'll be married for a long, long time. Both are going to live to be old and then die sure. on the same day or something. I don't know. But, um, you know, and, and Chatter and I are in this great place. We're done. We're past, like, having kids. We're not having any more kids. So we're not in this phase of life where we're having sex to reproduce, um, you know. And we're not yet to the phase where we have to worry about our bodies aren't doing sexually what they had once done. So we're not, like, lamenting yet or or trying to figure out what that next phase looks like. Sex is just really good right now. It's good. And that's great. Like we're we're in a place of You know of each other, you trust each yeah. other, you've been together for so long. It took 18 years to get there yeah. though, Jonathan. It took 18 yes. years. It wasn't something that happened overnight and I do the same thing, man. We're in I'm in counseling sessions with people that are getting ready to get married and I go, "Your honeymoon's going to be amazing. You getting married is going to be amazing. But please realize that sex is not like is not going to be the best part of your honeymoon." It's probably going to be awkward, especially for those that have waited, um, even for those who haven't. But for those who have waited to have sex, this is a brand new exploratory experience for them. Um, and and it's like, you know what? It is. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take some getting used to. You're going to have to figure each other out. It is not going to be some weird Hollywood has made it look like it's going to be fantastic. Those things aren't even real. <laughs> like, yeah. That's not real sex. <laughs> no, Rachel, so you bring up you bring up a really good point in talking about the seasons of life. Because because you're right. Uh in in the same way that Olympic Olympians have a particular window of their life where they are most primed to be participants in the Olympics. There's a particular age range that most world records and different sports are um are made in. Uh, our bodies, socially and physically, emotionally, are geared up for sex in particular years. And we're all very, very excited, very gung-ho as young people about engaging in sex. But one of the things that I find interesting about our culture 
being such a sexual culture, whenever I watch the nightly news, is all of the Cialis and Viagra commercials. Because we've made marriage so much about sex and we've made life so much about sex that elderly people can't watch the nightly news without being bombarded with the idea that you need to continually be per- be pursuing sexual uh, adventures. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good word, Jeremy. You you gotta be, you gotta be pursuing sex even when you're way past your prime. Even when your body naturally is saying to you. You know what? It's time to focus on other things. And so really what culture is telling us is that the greatest enjoyment of all of life is sex. Is that what it's saying? I, I, is that what culture I is telling so. us? The greatest enjoyment in your entire life. So what does that say to all of our Christians who are single, um, people who are are widowed, people who are past that stage in life? Where, oh, well, you just can't. You can't, you know, you can't live it up. Yeah. You can't live it up because, you know. Your life's no good anymore because you can't have sex. That's exactly the message. And it's 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 wrong. It even even about marriage. I mean, having having children is tiring. It is exhausting. It compromises my relationship with my wife. While on our honeymoon, we were spending all of our time kind of talking about and thinking about sex. At this phase in our life, we're finding the most meaningful thing we've done so far is to create other humans and honestly their well-being and their life is going to be our lasting legacy in this in this world not our sex life and if you grow in christian maturity you do realize that there is more to live for than the things that this culture is telling us to live for and we in the church like as rachel said have done a poor job about talking to single people Say maybe you won't get married and you can still have the fullest, right, robust spirituality that that and I think even Paul says, Hey, if you don't want to marry, that's actually maybe better. But, it's we better. It, but but we make it second place though. Like our every single female I talk to, what is her desire if she's single? I just really want to be married. Like I we have made it somehow that you are second rate if you if you are not married and or if you're not if you're not having sex, man, you're just you're just missing out. And it's and unfortunately such a for some people, sometimes the saddest day at church is Mother's Day. Because they aren't able, they aren't married, they aren't um maybe their mother passed away, but there's just a lot of sometimes fertility issues. And we in the church prop it. I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate it, but it it's not in the Bible. It's a hallmark, you know, holiday, but we make it and turn it into this celebration of you've arrived because you have reproduced rather than helping people find their fulfillment once again in who God's created them to be, find their fulfillment in loving God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving their neighbor as their self, finding their fulfillment in whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done it to me as well. And how do we get back to that narrative, that story? And how do we especially help our teenagers understand that narrative and that story and not feel the pressure of always having to have a boyfriend, a girlfriend, always have the pressure of having to live into the story our culture tells us rather than the story that God has laid out for us. When I talk to couples about marriage and the the point of marriage and marriage counseling, I say to them that it's reproduction. And most people would assume that there's just one kind of reproduction that it's physical reproduction. The fact of the matter is marriage has given us also for spiritual reproduction. A man and a woman, two aspects of God's character coming together are the place 
that we find God's character most perfectly revealed to the world. And so regardless of your ability to have a child, Christian marriage is is the is really the is the special place where we find God's character most fully expressed to the world. And people who don't have children still can be hospitable, still can be pouring into others, still can have a full, vibrant life of spirituality and godliness and goodness. Um, and that kind of impact on the world is not limited to one's sexual ability to reproduce. And I read something that, that talked about how you may be single, but guess what? You're still a parent to all the kids in our church. You may be married and not be able to have kids. Guess what? You're still a parent. And as we as the community come together, we understand that, um, once again, you know, it's been popularized by Hillary Clinton, so don't hold that against us. But um, it takes a neighborhood. It takes a village. Yeah. And, and, and how do we create that community, that narrative among our people that says, um, hey, your grandkids live in Texas and you live in Ohio? Guess what? We have a lot of kids that need some grandparents sitting in the pew right next to you. And, um, and, and I know for me, I've never lived close to family. And so my kids have grandparents all over the country and, mm-hmm. and aunts and uncles. And, and we love the, the real aunts and uncles and the real grandparents. It's not that they aren't awesome and amazing, but we uh, have just been so privileged to be part of a community where they get even more of that because we are all a part of, of who God wants us to be. So I think we land back on discipleship. I mean, yeah. if we're going to help curb the... If we're going to help curb the idea of sex in our culture, in our churches, in our teenagers, in our own families, if we're going to help create healthy avenues, we've got to be discipling. We've got to be teaching on it. We have to be open and honest and helpful. We've got to be encouraging. Um, and when people are struggling, we've we've got to stand beside them and and support them. I When I was on a mission trip recently, I had – there were, there were six – six young ladies between the age of 18 and 24 that went on this, went on this mission trip. And they were like, so pastor Rachel, what would you do if, you know, if Ryan came home and told you that he had gotten a girl pregnant and I, you know, like off the cusp, I was like, I would kill him, you know, (laughs) bury him in the backyard. (laughs) That's my, that's my term of loving my children. It's like, if you don't cut it out, I'm going to kill you and bury you in the backyard. So if anybody's ever looking for my kids, I want to know where they're at. Um, and then I said, no, 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 really. I said, I would just lament. Like, I I would. I would just, um, I would be heartbroken for him and for the young lady. I would be, um, you know, have this longing for this creation that's being brought into the world unexpectedly. Um, but I would still be a parent. I'm still going to love. I'm still going to offer grace. And um and we've we act like somehow that if we are harsh with those people or if we are frustrated with them or if we pick it or if we do whatever it is that we need to do to show that we are right and they are wrong, we have totally missed out on what Jesus wants us to do and who he came to be. Somebody's life is not going to be transformed by me yelling at them or probably not by carrying a picket sign outside of their business. They're going to be transformed because I sit down with them and I love them where they're at and teach them to be like Jesus. Man, that's good. Well, Rachel, thanks for being our first guest. Yeah, thank thanks you for, for having th- me. No, thanks for just enriching the conversation today. It's been very meaningful. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you back. <laughs> I'd love to come back. <laughs> cool. cool.
Thanks, Rachel. The Evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. It is produced by Isaac Smith.